And welcome back to another On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the uh, Deputy Director of High Performance West, coach at University of Houston, joined my, by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus of High Performance West. John, it's post-NCAA cross-country, and we are back to talk about something. Oh, we're back to talk about what the people want. Hey, if you want something, shout out to Steve on Twitter. Shout out to me starting December 1st. I'll be back online. The blackout period is going to be over. I know it'll be exciting to some. Thanks to everyone in person who's reached out and been like, hey, man, where'd you go? Well, I just pressed the pause button, man. You know, a lot of other tweets out there to, to take in. So shout out to Steve before December 1st or me. I'll be back to answer your questions so we can know exactly what the people want but i think people want to know about what we're talking about today all right today we're gonna talk about something very interesting it's called fatal flaws so <laughs> dun, dun, dun. this should have been like a halloween episode i know dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. what is your flaw <laughs> um yeah. we're gonna we're gonna get re- real today fatal flaws um so what what in the world do we mean by that? Well, everybody from top to bottom, from elite to high school, jogging around, walk on, everybody's got a, a weak point that um, I'll say prevents them from taking that next step or gets in the way of them performing to maybe their full potential. Because I... yeah. I, I hate to break it to you, but I don't think anybody ever reaches their 100% full potential. Um, even the best and the best. There's always something else that, that could be done, can be figured out. Um, so we're going to talk about, maybe give you a couple of examples of uh, what those flaws might look for and look like. And, you know, what do you do to maybe overcome your own flaws or those of your athletes? I think it's important, too, to contrast fatal flaws with weaknesses, because I feel like weaknesses are skills that are yet to be developed. A lot of times we say, oh, here's my weakness. And, well, you've ne- if you've never practiced a certain skill or had exposure to a certain way of doing things, and this can be for any athlete in any sport or any person, right, you can't call it a fatal flaw. This came about, this idea for this topic, Steve and I were talking I was talking to some other coaches, too, about recruiting and, you know, the recruitment process, high school coaches or, you know, support college or college, soon to be college athletes on in the process that a college coach looks for in a high school athlete. And even, you know, when Steve and I work with post-collegiate athletes in our recruitment process, less and less and less now am I worried or focused and centrating on how fast, how many accolades, how many achievements someone has more and more and more what the hard um, uh, knocks of life have taught me, or what we call experience, is that we need to clearly identify and articulate someone's potential fatal flaw. And more than anything, that's a self-imposed obstacle or some type of um, burden or hindrance on their development trajectory. It can be physical, right? It can be biomechanical, potentially. It can be emotional, and, or more often than not, it's actually psychological or comes out of the coping world. And how do we cope with certain things or how do we interpret 
reality. And this is not a knock on any athlete, but it's there's you know it, it's also spurred from Steve and I reading uh, the Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. You know that very thick uh, new book that came out, which is brilliant, and you know, we talked about it last episode as well. But just saying there's certain characteristic or traits that are ex- highly expressed if you're attuned and looking for them that can give you a, a cue and a pointer. Now, fatal flaw is not nearly uh, something that's cemented and set in stone and is unchangeable in most people. I think it's a little bit more malleable. For some, it might be cemented and it's just the way they are wired, so to speak. But I think in the recruiting process, it's really easy to get uh, swayed and to uh, fall in love with the positives of somebody. Even dating, you name it, right? Anytime you're meeting someone new, it's always easy to look at the benefits, but not necessarily the costs of engaging in that new relationship. And this is where if you're clear about certain fatal flaws, and we're going to specifically talk about you know, coaching in the distance world from a psychological and uh, physical standpoint, then you know what you're up against. So it will hopefully be something that when you get down the road, you're not frustrated or at a loss for uh, words or actions or programs or processes to address those flaws because you identify them in your onboarding or in your recruitment process instead of getting blindsided and be like, I don't know how to you know, guide or help or assist this person because I, you know, I feel like this is a brand new thing that's been expressed when it's actually been something that they've been a burden they've been carrying with them their you know their life until then point. Yeah. So so how I'm just thinking this over live on podcast. How how do you how should we proceed here? Because there's a lot of uh, a lot of things we could uh, go over. Um, we could look at identifying. Uh, those flaws mm-hmm. we could look at how to uh how to decide whether it's something that that is fixable or uh something that you can get through and get around uh or if it's something like in the recruiting process it is just a a no-go um yeah i mean we can go the scientific model right which is you know reduce and pick out the the things or we can go with the platonic model and we can say what's ideal what is the ideal abstract at the best the highest level possible and then how, what's the gap between the ideal and that person? So you tell me, Steve. You, I'll let you pick science or philosophy path. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, um, I am the science guy. So I think we're going to reduce and then we can come around to the ideal at the end. Okay, that's fine. I like it. Staying in your bell house. You, that's, you know, that's fine. Uh, on this one, I am not stepping outside of my comfort zone. <laughs> We're not getting vulnerable yet. No. It's going to happen, though. No, not, not <laughs> okay. yet. Okay, fair enough. Let the experts speak. All right, you go. Preach. <laughs> All right. So, uh, reducing things down. So, I, I think if we look at this from a fatal flaw and a psychological standpoint, I think we have to look at a couple different things. I think we have to look at um, people's identity with themselves. Yes. Right. Yes. How, how they see mm-hmm. themselves. Um, I have to see. I have to think we look at things like uh, uh, where does their motivation come from. Yes. Um, and 
feel free to chime in. I'm I'm oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going. Off, you're leading. <laughs> I'm going. Down well, I think off. we can go. Let's just start with the identity part because that could okay. probably be like five podcasts. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure it will lead us down tangents to other places because five pi- podcasts. John and Steve's adventure in finding their own identity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, self identity is you know is key you know we are social creatures we are status seeking creatures and i think to me i always start with status when i think about self-identity because we are hierarchical by nature it's implicit it's in our reptilian brain you look at chimpanzees you look at other mammals you look at birds there are hierarchies right so this is something really interesting and sorry this is going to be me sciencing it up um I learned this the other day that generally, I, I think it's uh, chimp uh, groups, <laughs> right? Their leader, quote unquote, leader only lasts on average three years, and then they yeah. get then they get overthrown. Um, mm-hmm. and There's a coup, yeah, yeah, and that's just and they're like and the reason I came across this is there was a. Uh, I think it was a documentary or something like that. Researchers were looking at it. They're like, oh, like, well, this next year we're going to, you know, focus on this essential tribe of chimps, whatever you want to call them, this group, um, because we expect them to be overthrown because it's been like three years or whatever. I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome that you can almost not not predict it, but almost be like, oh, yeah, like behavior is behavior. And like this is. This is kind of probably what's going to happen next. Maybe it's a little later than we thought or a little earlier, but like, you know, people can only be in the lead for so long. Yeah. So, you know, and and branching off that in in terms of this identity thing and and getting to your point of status is I think I think sometimes we um, we fail to realize how deeply ingrained this is. Right. And it's oh yes, jeez, yeah. it, we're hardwired for it. We crave it. It is a drug. Yeah, it is. And I think it's like, you know, it's easy to think of ourselves as like this high, higher, highly evolved being that you know is above all this stuff. But like, if you take the time to look at again, if you're a science nerd like me, maybe Robert Sapolsky's work on a on um, apes and chimps and um, human relationships and stuff like that. And others, I'm sure. Um, but it's just fascinating how similar we are to like these very basic needs and basic interests. And one of them being is this hierarchy of status and this need to uh, need to uh, find ourselves and find our, our place in in whatever tribe group we are. And sometimes it's that search for that like power dynamic of top place, but sometimes it's just like we do better when we know exactly like where we stand and what job we have, right? Mm-hmm. And so someone mm-hmm. will be happier if they like have a designation of even if you're a low rung job, but they have a sense of who who they are and who they're supposed to be than someone who maybe position is higher up in that realm, but like doesn't have that, that defined position. And I think you see that play out in, uh, in running and athletics as well. Yeah. We crave clarity, right? Confusion is creates, you know, this tension and insecurity and in this mindset of scarcity. And we don't know what to do. We get anxiety from confusion. This is why, you know, runners, love tracking the mileage they love the excel file oh what's my whole training block for a year you know what i mean it's like 
it gives this illusion or, you know, reality, perceived reality of clearly defined parameters, clearly defined direction in our life. And we crave that. That's, you know, why religion is so potent and powerful and works and is a good thing to have, right? Or community or why we have job titles in the first place. You know, why we have differences in pay and responsibility, you know, because it's about clearly defining roles. So, you know, this is your task. This is your task. That's why the military works so well, because commanders do this, lieutenants do that, soldiers do this. And it's good, clean cut and straightforward. And it, you know, alleviates a lot of um, conscious mental thought and decision making from us when we know, you know, um, that we just need to stay in our lane, as they say and fill your role. However, status in our society in in, in related to our self-identity has the potential to be highly corrosive. It's it's a fire, right? It can warm the house or burn it down. And a lot of times we have status associated with trinkets and things that don't mean anything. So your actual self-worth as a human being can be related to, you know, trinkets or shallow status markers like say social media, right? There's a lot higher rate of depression now amongst um, adolescents in uh, Western developed countries than there ever has been before um, documented. And one of the uh, you know um, hypotheses is it's because of the earlier and earlier onboarding of people onto social media and every like, every retweet, everything is interpreted as a validation and a status because it's relational, right? She didn't like my Instagram posts. He didn't retweet me on Twitter. He didn't He didn't like my Facebook picture, whatever it might be, right? And so we feel f- um, frightened, like our belonging or our sense to our peer group is in threat and in doubt if we don't get that. And it becomes addictive, right? So dopamine starts to take over and th- those shallow positive hormones start to um, uh, hijack us. And then all of a sudden it becomes this addiction and you're spending all this time on your social media, you know, now rating this hierarchy. Because in that scenario, you can also get a lot of envy, right? So it's envy about who has more followers than you, who has more likes than you, who do you think looks prettier or more masculine or who just won this race or who just set this time, right? And so it can get really confusing, especially for young people and even older people too, by hanging your self-worth on the status scoreboards um, that we now have more so than ever proliferated throughout our day-to-day existence. And at the end of the day, runner, who's the better you know, competitor in relation to everyone in the field? But now we've morphed it and we've multiplied it, right? So a kid can run a, a race at the high school level, win a dual meet, and that's totally awesome, but they can feel dejected because my time's not fast enough. Oh, well, I'm, I won the race, but I'm only ranked 200th in the country, so I suck. And it's like, no, 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 no. The whole point of extracurriculars like sport is supposed to teach us how to deal with failure and success in a healthy, positive manner. But when we interpret it as a status and this endless scoreboard to like nowheresville, and it's just something, it's a, you know, it's a rat race on a wheel in that we can't win, it becomes exhausting emotionally and also subconsciously and also physiologically in your endocrine system i mean cortisol is up you're putting out all these hormones that are just trying to keep you alive because what'd you do oh, i checked instagram for five minutes 
<laughs> you know, and it's it's a really difficult thing. So where do you root your self-identity? And that's what you have to ask young people. And it's okay to have part of your identity rooted in, you know, sport. That's actually healthy. It gives you a little bit of sticking power. It gives you a little bit of perseverance. But you can't have all of it rooted in it, right? Like you have to have some of your identity rooted into your friendship um, circle, into your family, into, you know, your career. Like we have to have investment of our identity in what we do. But if we don't, then that becomes difficult for us to um, function normally. But again, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult fire. It's a difficult balance. So what you're telling me is that my verified blue check on Twitter, I should, I should let go, man. That. Dude, quick aside. <laughs> okay, so I went on my Twitter. Okay, sorry, it's a little rant. But I went on my Twitter sabbatical here. And I went on Instagram. I No social media, no, no answering emails. Like, I just went dark you know except know. for like text phone calls okay thanks <laughs> in that time i read 40 books like so instead of going on my phone to do check my twitter and mindlessly i just went on my kindle and oh my gosh my productivity and what i have to say and what i've learned just went up about fivefold you know in some ways it was great and it really showed me the power of how mindless i was being just letting it be this easy addiction that I just, oh, I got 10 seconds. I got a minute. Now so, I just, boom, go to Kindle. So I think that's a, and we'll come back on topic, but I think that's a, a good um, demonstration of recognizing and realizing how the human, like the basic human condition is we are very, um, very kind of lazy in a sense. Our, our, yes. our brains and body are, are designed, man, we're going straight. Anthra, anthropology this lesson yes uh, let's do it baby <laughs> but our, up, our people <laughs> giving you our brains and bodies are kind of designed to conserve energy right um it's why we're we're actually very good at storing calories right um it's part of the reason why we have the obesity epidemic right now is because like our bodies in the past are like oh man like we need to store this stuff and be relatively efficient, like in our energy utilization, um, because we don't know where our next meal is coming from. Right. We go through these cycles mm -hmm. of feast or famine, all that stuff. So the same same thing holds true for even doing things. Right. We will almost always default to the the path of least resistance, the the uh, thing right in front of us. It's why habits are so, so you know, um, helpful to ingrain, good, good or bad. Right. Um, it's the friction cost. It, Minimizing the friction cost of doing something makes it easy to start a habit. Maximizing the friction friction cost of doing something makes it a lot easier to break a habit. Right. Exactly. So when you sit here and think, I, I think it was Stephen King who, in his uh, memoir on writing. Uh, talked about how he carried a uh, carried a book around at all times so that he would default to reading a book, right? Mm -hmm. He just carried them around, and whenever he stopped, he would do that, right? And and I think what we've done now is we've changed that default to um, mindlessly scrolling through Twitter, Facebook, all those things, uh, which I'm entirely guilty of as well. I think every human on the planet with a smartphone is guilty of that. Um, and I think, you know, John's sabbatical there is a uh, good example of that. And I think it's just worth uh, worth being mindful over, over what you're defaulting to. Um, because what you're defaulting to 
can uh, determines largely what you do with your time because uh, quite honestly most of our time is spent defaulting to something right if you looked at our productivity even on jobs right i remember there was a study a couple years ago that showed like on an eight hour work day maybe we get like two hours of actual work done um so we, yeah like at best three yeah best three yeah <laughs> like so we default to doing stuff non-productively right and if you can make that non-productive stuff actually secretly productive <laughs> then, then you're you're winning the game right um so yeah and even if you have the best intentions too like i yeah. curate my twitter real hard i only follow like 35 40 people so that I, I wouldn't get lost in the scroll, as they say, right? It's not to, like, dick move anybody. It's just like, hey, I'm only going to, like, have focused on people who generate interesting content that's, like, news articles or research studies or, you know, very in-depth blog. Like, it's it's not just, like, who can have a snarky, like, reply or, you know, retweet or something. I don't care about that. That's not what I use it for. It's a tool, but then I recognized in me, man, the tools also becoming a little too much um, uh, consuming for my like. So I just I had to just make a, a hard break. Right. I just had to say, all right, just stop and let's see what happens in three months by just going dark. And sometimes it's worth to take that sabbatical. Yeah. So let's uh, let's round this back on track here. Um and we're talking about about fatal flaws on this. And I think that is like that right there is recognizing one of your current flaws. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and saying, all right, this is a flaw. How do I deal with this? Like the downside can be potentially bad. Right. Stepping away from Twitter, or social media or whatever. Like there is a negative side to it in the sense that like you're stepping away from people you interact with, you're right. t- taking yeah. your voice out of out of the world for a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is a downside, but you you weigh that upside against it and say like, hey, I really am out of whack, out of balance here. I need to uh, to get some sort of handle on this if I want to. Uh, better myself and better myself in the the craft that I'm choosing. And that's where you have to do a lot of like, you know, taking inventory and self-reflection and say, where do I want to be going? What's the direction? And what's the gap between my current trajectory and that ideal direction, right? And so it's easy to get caught up in like, all right, let's just run 100 miles a week and then I'll magically get good. Let's just, you know, uh, go lift in the gym and I'll magically get, get good, right? The, the whole training puzzle is a physiological puzzle and whoever has the smartest training plan produces the best athletes who perform, you know, the best on race day. And we know it's not the case, right? Because there might be other fatal flaws that are covered up by that work ethic and that commitment. Like those are prerequisites. You need to have those in any discipline and craft. You have to practice deliberately for many hours with high frequency every day to get better and acquire the skills you want to be competitive. And whether it's in the classroom and your work, you know, with your peers, family, spouses, et cetera. However, that can just be masking the reality that when what happens if you are so result oriented on race day that you get to 
the race and you don't perform anywhere near your ability, you can't express or demonstrate your ability when everyone's there to witnesses. You can do it fine in unwitnessed territory like practice or workouts. But then when witnesses are, in, are there watching, you cower, you, you know, um, you recede away from the opportunity to perform and from that challenge because your fear is not doing well because you want to do well. But then you create the conditions in yourself to not do well. And then you, you know, run, uh, you know, at 50%, you drop out, you know, you blame it on the weather and injury on someone brushed up against, you know, your elbow in the first 10 meters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And that's when you see, you know, certain self-identities wedded towards outcomes that are hindrances rather than helpful. Vice versa, too, people who are more process-oriented, we know in general, like focusing on small, actionable items, like immediately in front of them, what they call like the spotlight effect, just focusing on what you can do in the next five minutes and not focusing on the outcome. Those people who default to that have an opportunity to just be more engaged and present, fully present in the moment as it is and make smart decisions, make more heads up, be more aligned with their ideal or goal self and what that person or that ideal would do in that situation, rather than be so worried that everyone else, right, is looking at you at like the spotlights on you and judging you every step of the way when the reality is they aren't. So that's, I mean, we've all coached athletes and even I was an athlete that put in the physical work to be highly competitive for my generation or my peer group or whoever I was racing against. But yet I had sporadic results. I had sporadic racing instincts. I never fully figured it out. Why? Because I realized, you know, until recently that I was status seeking as young people are. And I was letting success or me winning races as a young high school and collegiate athlete define if I had value or not. And which is completely perverted because, it sh- you know, it shouldn't have been the case. But I n- wasn't aware of it. I didn't have one to mentors to intervene and tell me, hey, you're going down this path. You're, you're wedding too much of your self-worth to these momentary outcomes that are going to evaporate once we all leave the building. And, you know, it's just like, wow, yeah, you're right. But it took me so much a long time to get to that, seeing that in myself now and then also seeing it with younger athletes I coached many years ago and even older athletes I've coached recently. It's it's not like you're a bad person and no one is for, for that. It's, it's a valid emotion and it, it needs to be called out as valid, but it also needs to be called as a hindrance too and something that no matter how much work you put in, how much desire and effort you want to do, if you have one of those things like, uncontrollable race to anxiety it's going to be a fatal flaw in amy cuddy's book presence she offers an example of someone who had performance anxiety going on stage and giving you know i forget if it was a talk or singing or some type of performance and she had this nervous tension anxiety but what that performer did astutely was shift it to excitement and it was a drip by drip you know day by day performance by performance I usually feel nervous and I mess up the, you know, or I don't perform to my level of ability on the stage. But then she said, oh, well, maybe I'm excited. Maybe I'm like, oh, this is going to be exciting. And slowly she able to shift how she interpreted those feelings from negative and bad and depressive to enthusiastic, exciting, you know, elevating, can't wait to do it, enabling. And those things I think are important to identify 
when you have enough data points or you've been working with someone long, someone long enough to say, why are they imposing self or why are they imposing barriers on themselves on performance day when they're crushing it in practice, when they care, when they're doing all the little things right, but then they're not seeing the tangible uh, results or outcomes for all their effort and getting super frustrated, dilapidated, jaded, disappointment and just pulling their hair out and so are you trying to help them become their biggest boldest self on the day of performance yeah you know and i've been there as well on that status seeking thing i think the the thing to emphasize here is that that's a natural reaction and that we're not saying like you know you're you're never going to be um free from wanting like these symbols of status but i think what it is is understanding what direction and what importance you're giving them and and like directing your own status in the right way right so as a coach since we're going since our our topic is fatal flaws what do we mean by status and fatal flaws. Well, it's someone who puts too much emphasis and ties too much of their self-worth or their identity to, you know, the results out on the track, right? And and that gets in the way from them making the jumps to the next level because how does that get in the way? Well, if your judgment of of success or failure uh, of yourself depends on if you run fast or slow, then what happens is you start you start getting almost this fear of failure of, of racing, right? The goal stops becoming executing the task at hand to the best of your ability. The task becomes almost playing what I call you start uh, start playing prevent, pre- prevent defense to make sure that you don't fail and can at least walk away feeling like, okay, like I didn't succeed, but I wasn't a total failure. Um, and that often occurs once someone intertwines their identity and uh, what they do to a, a high degree. And actually, you see this not only in running, but often in the business world um, where you see companies, or, or let's take something recent, right? If you look at Facebook and their uh, their handling of uh, you know all the, um, the crazy stuff that they're going through, if you've read any anything up to date on that maybe the uh, latest new york times piece i think came out last week or something like that um what it showed was leaders who were worried more about the status of their and how their company looked rather than how it was actually working what was actually functioning and what they were actually trying to do so it was more important to have the optics right why? Because of status symbol, rather than do the best thing that is for the their their company and you know what what their goal or mission was, um, according to their mission statement. So you look at things like that, and and I think tie that back into running is it gets in the way once you start tying your identity and your results up so tight that it becomes this block to get to the next spot, right? And I think that's where we run into a lot of trouble and where I've seen athletes run into a lot of problems and almost like self-sabotage themselves because they don't allow themselves to get to the next level because they're too worried about um, proving or showing where they belong in this uh, wonderful, crazy world of uh, running. And this is why all the old school coaches or I shouldn't say old school, but veteran and really accomplished and esteemed and smart coaches, some of them who are our mentors, right? Like, you know, Vern Gambetta, 
Danpath, uh, you know, etc. They're always more worried about doing the fundamentals as best you can. What that is, is it's um, lay speak for the process. So they know the path to the highest competitive or highest achieving or highest able self for each person. The vehicle is the fundamentals and honing that ability, honing that acumen to be able to do those skills at a very, very quick, rapid, but efficient level. And this is why I say Dan Path and Altus and Stu McMillan, all those guys start day one with the basics, day one with the fundamentals. Who, who, who also does this? Nick Saban at Alabama. Think about it. They recruit some of the best football players out there. Day one, fundamentals. Here's how to block. Here's how to throw. Day one. They don't even let freshmen play except in you know, really rare circumstance because they need to build the fundamentals up right so that when they're in the crossfire of a football game, going at a million miles an hour and like interpreting multiple vari- or, um, variables in, through their perception, they can make quick decisions in rapid succession. But if they have to think about how to block, if they have to think where to position the arm, if they have to think where to put the football, it's not going to work. And, you know, you hear a lot of Coaches be like, oh, yeah, no, don't you work on biomechanics, don't you do that? Well, again, it's it's like it goes back to mastery of craft and that principle, right? And that's where, you know, if you reframe what status is, is it about winning trophies? Is it about winning All-American? Is it about setting school records? Is it about, and you reframe it to, it's about, you know, and I, I saw this um, quote from Michael Johnson recently, he talked about a stroke he had. He's like, I went back in my Olympic mindset recovering from my stroke. And all I did was focus on the best I could do that day session and then just getting better and better every day. And the vehicle to get better and better every day to fully recover almost from his stroke where he was immobile for several days to where he's near total functioning, walking, talking, being normal. He just focused on what's the bring the best I can do today for this session. No more, no less. And it might not be as good as yesterday, and it might not be as good as tomorrow, but this is the best I got right now. And I think we always want to see this idea of the bank account getting bigger, where you're, you know today's, today's best is better than yesterday's best. Today's best is better than last year's best. However, I saw this you know, with Rob Connor and the University of Portland Pilots recently, and they were at the Nationals and in the team meeting, and he astutely told them, guys, I don't want you thinking about what place you're in. I don't want you to count counting spots because he had a lot of returners from last year's NCAA cross. And he's like, you got 11th last year. You you got 40th last year. You got this last year. Don't even think about what you got last year and that you have to do better this year in terms of individual placing. Like just execute our process. Just execute our plan. Give it the best you have that day. If you can walk across the line saying, I ran the style that was our racing strategy and that we prepared for, and that was everything I had. And you can look everyone in the eye and everyone can look you back who ran with you. That's success, trophy or no trophy for us. And what happened is like it was a very difficult challenge and a very difficult race. And, you know, the team pulled out another trophy back to back, not out of nowhere trophy like last year when they got second, but a third place where expectations were high. It was a senior season group. And some guys ran lower than, you know, sticks than they had last year. The 11th guy was 24th. You know, a guy who was picked to be in the top 10 by some pundits was 40th on their team. But it didn't matter because they're like, gosh, it's everything I had. And so in some ways, that outcome was sweeter than the first one because they faced adversity during 
and they still showed up and rose to the call about how to keep pressing on even in less than perfect circumstances, even in adverse conditions, even they didn't, you know, adverse feeling of ability. And that's totally because they reinterpreted what status was. Had they gone in being result-oriented and we need to make this program a national powerhouse and the only way to do that is trophies and you got to get top 10 and you got to get 20th. And if that guy's not feeling on and all of a sudden he's moving backwards, moving backwards isn't five spots, it's 50 spots, right? Because you're, you're seeing that assignment that you were given out of your grasp and then you start to go down a negative thought pattern. And that's the brilliance in a lot of ways of some programs we see in Division One cross country, NAU and Mike Smith, same deal. They're very departed and unwedded from status. I was walking with Mike after they won, and this is like an hour or two hours after the races. Everyone was gone. <laughs> the cross country course was empty. It was only like Portland and NAU and maybe one other team, but it was a it was a you know deserted town. <laughs> and Mike's like, man, look around. I go, yep. Wasn't that fun? He goes, yep, that was fun. That was a fun moment to share with these guys. I'm glad I could support them on their journey. I'm glad I can support them on their, you know, furthering their bonds with each other. That was a lot of fun, regardless of whether we walked home with the trophy or not. And he was sincere. He meant it throughout his whole being. And, you know, you ask, how do these programs that get all this killer talent not develop it or not actualize it? And not to say there's not great coaching out there, but it might be you know, a, a lack of addressing those fatal flaws that are so related to status outcome in this hierarchy that you're not valid or you're not good unless you get X. And some call it a standard of excellence, sure, but I, I beg to argue that it might not be the right interpretation or the most beneficial interpretation of what a real standard of excellence means. Yeah, you know, to give you a... Uh... <laughs> The opposite side of this, we were talking offline a little beforehand, but I think it's it's pertinent in this, this is on that fundamental section. Like, so this year, um, this year I had a group in cross country. We had, I don't know, four freshmen, uh, two sophomores, and a junior, or something like that, uh, in our top top seven in cross country. Um, last year we graduated. Uh, out of the guys who ran at regionals who got a uh, our best regional performance in I think 15 years um, at least it, we graduated uh, four out of six who ran at that regional meet and they were all fifth years the four were fifth year seniors so we had this really young team in cross country and I had almost taken it for granted that that the fundamentals of uh, were covered so because the group before the hand, I, as I said, I had four fifth-year seniors in that group. I had, I think, six fifth-year seniors um, in total all around on our team last year. So the we'd, we'd ingrain this culture and ingrain the fundamentals so much on what was expected, how to race, how to do all these little things that my coaching mind just kind of forgot about it, right? Because we pattern that and then the co then the athletes themselves would teach the next group right and it just got like this until we got to this year and i was like you know about halfway through the season i'm like man like these guys are getting fit but it's not not clicking what are we right missing what are we you know what did i not cover and 
honestly, it was those fin- fundamental things. And we spent, especially the regional meet, we kind of took a, a step back and said, all right, we got to get back to the basics of racing, right? And get out of the head of this almost high school mentality or this mentality of, of where should I be in the race? What should my splits be? What place should I be in? And for the guys on the team, we put the emphasis on like, I don't, I don't care where you are. This is your, you know, out of the seven guys I ran at regional six, had never run a 10 K before. So I said, I don't care where you are. Like we had five guys, our top five, who I was like, I want you to run together and you have to, mm-hmm. you have to all be together and get through 4k all together. And once you get through 4k, wait another K get through 5k and then you can turn your racing minds on but nothing until then right and my my back to my sixth and seventh guys who are 800 runners so 149 151 guys running a 10k for the first time (laughs) yeah and this was in a, a a very muddy college station so the course ran probably a minute and a half to two minutes slower than it would which is you know great for an 800 guy um we talked beforehand. I said, you know what? I want you guys to go out and damn near last place, stay there for the mile, and then then start passing as many people as you can, and your goal is to just move, move up, and that's it. Right. And and we didn't knock it. Like, we didn't run anything out of, out of the world at the regional meet, but we came in not regionally ranked anywhere near the top 15 and came out 14th, right? And for those guys, like... That was their best race of the the season. That was like, they finally were like, oh, that was actually kind of fun. Oh, I'm finally kind of getting this. Like, oh, that felt so much better to have, you know, my teammate next to me. And when he was dying, like, I felt better and I carried him through. And then like when I was dying, like, I knew, all right, just stay tough, stay close, etc. And, you know, I'm sitting here, like, after the race, and in my head I'm thinking, like, yeah, that's 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 how it's supposed to work. But <laughs> yeah. we never like we never fully addressed this until like I realized came to this realization that like, hey, these are a bunch of guys who well they might have been really successful in, in, in high school and run some pretty solid track times and shown some pretty good fitness. Like they don't have the fundamentals, especially of college racing yet. And yeah. We we gotta we gotta go back to step one, and that was that was my flaw as a coach, which was holding them back, um, because their expectations were were something you know they were they're a very driven group and their expectations were high and all this stuff and that was their status was based on race performances and finishing in the top whatever, and we had to re, re realign and. And change the goal of like, hey, this is the process that you guys need to do. And like, you guys got to learn how to do this. Um, so it was a, a very, you know, apt reminder for myself, someone who's been doing this coaching thing for, I don't know, 10, 11 years um, to, to almost, you know, go back to the basics and not to belabor the point. But we had to do the same thing and and learning how to run tempo runs, right? It it, mm-hmm. it had been so long since I've taught someone how to run a quote unquote, quote unquote tempo or threshold because 
Again, what would happen is we had a bunch of senior leadership who knew what was expected, who if they saw a kid was like really pressing it or like taking off, they just go up to him in the middle of the tempo run and say, hey, man, like you don't need to push. Like just get back in the pack, you know, right. but but when you don't have that, like that's that's my job. Right. And I neglected that because. You know, it had been so long since I'd had to right, yeah, like re-engage totally. and do that. So we went back to how I would teach someone how to how to run a tempo or a threshold when I was coaching, you know, high school kids for the first time. And it's like, right. and it's not to say these kids aren't smart or don't get it; they're highly intelligent kids. But it's like they hadn't been taught in a group setting of like, hey, this is how it is. And and sometimes mm-hmm. that happens a lot in in that transition from high school to college because the new high school kids they they're fiery man they want to prove themselves they want to set the world on fire um as they should yes and that's totally valid i mean most exactly. of them are coming as alphas of some sort who were winning races that's why they got recruited division one right exactly so it's like yeah and that's you know going to this fatal flaws topic your goal as a coach is how to keep that like degree of 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 hunger in there while also teaching them almost this mindful patience of executing the fundamentals of racing, right? Because I think sometimes people have this misconception of, oh man, like if I if I let some of this fire go, then like, I'm not going to be competitive, right? Like I have mm-hmm. to, I call it the, uh, the disease of the Prefontaine movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because yes. like you watch pre enough and then, and like, what's the lesson? Like, Oh man, I got to be tougher than everybody. I got to go like put my foot down and go balls to the wall. And, and if I don't do that, like I'm not tough, I'm not like pre, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, part of that is awesome because you're like, oh, man, I got a gamer. I got a kid who, like, really wants to go for it and has the motivation. But part of this is reality in the sense that, like, that is that is great and grand in TV land. But in actual race, racing, it takes this this patience of doling out that toughness, quote unquote, to to, uh, you know, over the entirety of a race, right? It's knowing when to mm-hmm. be tough in a race and when to, you know, be aggressive and when to be engaged rather than saying, hey, I'm going to go run a 10K and I'm going to go out and hang on until I can't and this is the best way to race. Yeah, and, you know, quick aside on that pre thing, like that's also was a deep social contract pre made with himself. He told himself, I think, after his last high school race that he lost, whether it was cross-country sophomore year or something, I'm never going to lose again. I hate that feeling. And we also know, right, loss aversion, much more powerful motivator than gain potential. So he held on to the feeling that he hated the most, which stemmed from losing, which probably stemmed from this lack of identity or this questioning of his own validity as a human being, whatever. And he's a good case study of someone who was able to use loss aversion and this feeling of the negative to spur him on to do things that didn't feel palatable or particularly appetizing or pleasing during the moment because he didn't want to experience and go down that deep, dark path that he hated so much, which he called losing. But also know his great quote of, you know, to not give your best is to sacrifice the gift. And that's really where you can take some solace in is like, you know, sacrificing the gift is the opportunity you have of the ability to focus and centrate and become 
become your powerful self and do the work, the prerequisite work that's required, that's demanded of it. That's a whole different game. Most people just take the shallow, oh, I'm going to be like pre and just go do it and it doesn't work out, you know, next week or for two weeks or two races and I got to quit. No, because pre at the same time too, you got to give it to him. He trained his butt off at such a higher threshold with such higher frequency than anyone else. You know, he never missed a day. He never got hurt. He wouldn't allow it because he made that social contract with himself. And so you see a lot of people just take the abstract or take the, the superficial machismo of that and fail miserably and they go, oh, well, it was me. But he knew he had to do the work and constantly put in the work to be at a, a level where he would not lose again. And that's why it's inspiring to see artists who figure it out at a young age. And like hats off to him as a study and other athletes who figure it out young, you know. Um, but the reality is that's most of us is not that. And so what are some things to reinterpret or, you know, reposition status as I'm a winner, look at me, I've showed I'm more valid or, you know, my feats of strength, I'm faster, I'm better, you know, than everyone else. And I think we can draw a lot from Pat Riley when he's with the Los Angeles Lakers in something that he called career best average, right? So it wasn't like you had to be better every day. You, didn't, you know, it wasn't this, you know, false notion of team sky, oh, 1%, you know, smoke and mirrors thing. But it was on, that's actually where Team Sky got the 1% idea. Because Pat Riley is like, can these guys be 1% better every month? Can they be 1% better, you know, month to month compared to last year? So what he did was he created career, career best averages. And so this was also in practice, right? And in games. And it was not just the typical shallow stats, you know, and the shallow stats in like cross country or track is like, What'd you run that lap in? What'd you run that mile in? How many miles a week? Those are easy to track, man. That's simple accounting. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to be that smart to like get the split where they put, you know, put the clock. He, on the other hand, was like, we're going to track things that matter to us culturally as Los Angeles Lakers. Hustle points, right? So like hustle points on defense would be um, catching up to a guy that, you know, burned you on a switch or diving for a loose ball or sacrificing your body to get a rebound, right? Or going up for a block shot or an offense would be taking or uh, would be taking the, um, saying the pick, right? And maybe saying two picks, right? So he created his own little matrix that they tracked about these are the things that are fundamentals for us that if we do, if you do these better than you've ever done, you know, this year than you compared to last year or this month this year compared to this month last year, then I guarantee you we're going to win it collectively and you're also going to get the shallow stats a lot higher. So, your you know, rebounds will go up per game, your assists, your points, whatever it is, right? And that it worked. That's why the Lakers were able to cultivate that talent they had in late 80s with Showtime, right? And they were able to do those things because, yeah, what you saw was – a lot of points being put up, flashy Magic Johnson passes, Kareem Skyhook, but there was a lot of hustle going on. Not just because they—that's just they were like, "Oh, I'll just hustle for the hell of it." It was a cultural thing that said, "These are the things that matter to us. People like us do things like this." And unfortunately, it came to an end because of the disease of more, which also Pat Riley coined and Mike Smith talked a little bit about in the pregame at uh, or um, press conference before. NCAs this year 
And it's where everyone just now wants more superficial or more status, more playing time, more money, more, 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 right? More attention, more, more. And that can derail a team when everyone, you know, has that, is hungry for that success, buys into the philosophy or the process that's going to get them to that success, and then shifts to maintain the success from a process orientation to a status orientation on the outcome. And that's very tricky to maintain. So like, you know, I look at fatal flaws with athletes I work with now, not just mental and emotional, also physical, right? Dan Herrera, good example, you know, not really a miler that was of any kind of like highly touted coming out of college, you know, 402, 405, something like that. And, you know, this first couple of weeks here, I go, Dan, you can't sprint. You can't run fast. That's a fatal flaw in the big leagues, dude. Like, is oh, yeah, you know, you get all these excuses. Well, when I sprint or try to do sprint work, I get, you know, Achilles tendonitis or I get sore, pull calves, plantar, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Like, you can't do this if you can't run really, really, really fast. You know, if you can't be throwing down 24, 23 second fly 200s. And so we had to then fit, huddle and figure out a way through different you know, modalities of weightlifting, hills, plyometrics, you know, something really intelligent and play this more infinite game rather than a finite game to reference um, James Carson's book again that also Simon Sinek, Simon Sinek has made a little bit po- um, more popular and has a forthcoming has book a forthcoming book out called On the Infinite Game and saying, Dan, if you really want to play at a high level, you know, be competitive consistently, we got to get you to be able to sprint you know and him winning the bring back the mile series this last year you know on the roads having participated in almost the majority of them through the whole season you know having ran 29 races in 2017 30 races in 2018 with zero injuries and being competitive in them right it's not to say like oh yeah look at dan or he's so great it's that was a seed in a deliberate um, practice planted day one in 2015 in the fall in September, right? And now the fruit is starting to come off the tree. But we recognize you don't have a shot if you can't do this because we looked at the speed of play. And so other things you have to be cognizant of as a coach is say, okay, what is the goal or what's the level of competitiveness you want your program or you want the athlete to play at? And then what's the gap and where are the gaps in those different areas, right? Is it endurance? Is it stamina? Is it, you know, race pace capacity? Is it sprint ability? What have you? Is it they, they just get injured all the time? Is it a consistency gap? And then figure out different interventions where you can track and minimize that gap, right? Danny Mackey at the Brooks Beast, he tracks the number of missed practices his athletes have. And one of the things he'll signal as Drew Wendell you know, his main um, driver for him winning the uh, Silver World Indoor Melon 800 last um, winter was he just missed like five days. Like in the first year, he missed 40. And so it was just less time, less time away from class, essentially, right? More time learning, more time absorbing, more time getting better, you know, less hiccups. Like he just, Drew was able to show up and get the most without interruption versus a lot of interruption the previous year, right? And that's where you have to cultivate your identity as a group or cultivate your identity as a coach in relation to your athlete about what do we value here and what we're going to track. Because if you just track the status, if you just track the achievements and the placards and the medals, 
you know, yeah, you'll get lucky every now and again and just get someone who just, you know, has it figured out and you can just ride that pony, you know, to the box office, so to speak. But that's not most people, right? Most people, all of us actually are to a certain degree works in progress, but we're trying to close the gap. And that's, I think the most important thing is say, where are those fatal flaws that we can focus on identify, be very specific about, and then create a plan or a direction or a strategy and then track and baby steps, getting better and better and better so that you can be your, your boldest, most expressive, most powerful self, whether it's on test day, race day, et cetera, so that you know we can get where we want to go. Because we know, right, that uh, New Year's resolutions or big goals, they don't work. It's too much. You can't sit here and say, I want to be a national champion. And, you know, and, you know, as a freshman, I come in the office, I want to be a national champion my senior year. And you were a walk on freshman who ran 930 for two miles. <laughs> you know, it's too big. And that's why New Year's resolution fails. I want to lose 30 pounds in two, you know, two months. It's too big. Start with the smaller, digestible things that you can get in the habit of doing that are going to lead you towards closing that gap so that, yeah, in a couple of years, you get closer to it. But it's the difference between the finite and the infinite game. And that's, again, most people have to shift towards playing a long game or the infinite game versus being solely shallow status seeking and playing a finite game. Man, I couldn't have uh, summed it up any better there. All right. Tough. I know it's tough to do, man. Or, or you know, another example that's contemporary is the 76ers, right? The process. You look at it now, it's like, how bad were they? And now they're not awful, right? They're actually kind of competitive. People are picking them to be one of the better teams in the NBA. But because they had a cultural or a mindset shift that everyone bought into. Well, you know, it, you know and most of the time, the reason that doesn't work is because uh, people lack the patience to do it, right? It it comes back to the default is like that is the long term play, like the the culture play is long term, and it takes work mm-hmm. and it takes time. The easy play is the quick fix, the the default uh, setting one, which is like oh crap, like let's just try and uh, find some guys who already have figured out this performance thing and um, ride them right. And you you see right. the same thing in in uh in professional sports with teams who just flip from one superstar they can sign to the next to hoping that the pieces fit and you see that in uh the college world and in cross country where people maybe flip uh to from transfers or imports or whatever uh or stud to stud just get enough studs and hope they all hope hope they all work out or some or five of them work out or for some people one of them work out um Mm mm-hmm but the long play is like don't don't fall for that quick fix but figure out take the time to focus on what what are we trying to accomplish right what is the right. the goal of the organization what is our philosophy um and then what is our process to get there and let's let's focus on that on that process and establishing it and getting guys in the culture right um but that takes time <laughs> And what you have to ask yourself, what's your, what are you doing? Are you managing or are you developing? Because yeah. if you're managing, you're just bringing in talent, quote unquote, that already knows what to do. And you're just managing the fringe stuff, just getting them to the practice track on time or getting them to the meet on time. You're saying, you guys know what to do. Here's the workouts. You just do it. And I'm just going to take 
press the lazy button and just do the superficial things and manage you. However, that does not work long term. It works short term, you know, but long term, it's about developing and you want to go to, you know, and be in an environment or if you're leading an environment where you're developing and identifying explicitly what you're developing and play that long term game. You know, we came up with a fun stat um, the other day about like the men's NCAA cross country uh, team titles or team trophies. And we looked at just the top three. So just, you know top three teams in over the last five years and there's only three teams in the last five years that have um, secured a top three trophy and one's NAU one is Stanford and the other one and the only other one is Portland so that's pretty difficult to do you know and then other teams had two right like Colorado BYU and Syracuse and that was it there was no one else who had a single trophy it was just those six teams over the last five years, accounted for the trophies, all the top threes, which is, when you think about it, pretty repetitious. <laughs> it's the same teams over and over again, but you have to ask yourself, like, what are they doing well to sustain their ability to get a result that status-wise is pretty esteemed, but they're able to bring it with a different group of people, a different group of runners, you know, you know, people shifting out, people shifting in, people being hurt, people being registered year in and year out. So, you know, the markers are there if you look um, closely, but you have to clearly say, if I'm a developer, if I'm a teacher, then I'm going to create the conditions and identify areas that we can nurture and knowing that it takes time. I, you know, I asked a couple of weeks ago, I texted Jerry Schumacher and asked him for some advice on something, you know, with an athlete. And he's like, hey, just remember development takes time you know i mean this is jerry right like development takes time like he's like you know you know it's exciting this person's like doing really well they seem pretty fit you know and i was like okay you know is there anything that i should be thinking of i was like no you're on the path but development takes time and we do get impatient and that's why we want the status and if we just commit ourselves to being development oriented and we identify ourselves as developers or works in progress or just trying to be the best we are and the best we can be today, not relative to yesterday, not relative to tomorrow, but the best we can be or the average of the best we can be this month compared to last month or this month compared to this month last year. That gives us a lot more concrete but also um, objective, objective standards to live by that gives us that sense of belonging and security rather than saying, well, you know, we value only because you are a winner. We value only if you run a PR every single race, every single season. You know, and that's where the coach, whether you're in the weight room, whether you're on the soccer pitch, whether you're in on the, the track or the cross-country course, that's where you need to cultivate that uh, interpretation and that posture frequently. And you're just curating that. You're just reminding people, this is what we're about. This is how we get to that end game. But it can be difficult if because the default is shallow. The default is easy. The default is go on Twitter, go on Instagram, go on here, go on TFERS, go on IWF, go on Miles, but whatever, and compare myself right now to everyone else. And then you start to it starts you start to get less motivated because you just say, Oh, I'm so far down the totem pole. Or as a young coach, right? 
how these people have all these All-Americans or these, you know, national championships or coach these Olympians or coach these national champions and how they do it. Give me the workouts. And I remember a long time ago, uh, I think Vern Gambetta told me, like, you know, an amateur thinks that the training is phys- solely physical. and But the professional knows that the training is majority mental or psychological. And when Vern told me that, you know, it was like, great, it's not just the physical side you have to still put that work in yes but you can't stop there you've got to integrate the mental the emotional the psychological component to lift people up and you know move them towards identifying in shallow terms instead of in more identifying in deep you know personal uh powerful boldest best self terms exactly couldn't couldn't have said it better so um we'll wrap up there with this uh this episode on fatal flaws as said if you have anything else um any topics you want john or i to uh, cover reach out to me on twitter and john once he gets off his uh, sabbatical from the uh, evil social media as well uh <laughs> hopefully come back stronger more more resistant to there defaulting you, to <laughs> there you go. we we all have to do that so uh, or or you know if you want to sponsor the podcast hit us up too it's not as much as you think like we're cheap dates <laughs> dang dang we are cheap dates that is we true. are cheap. simple dates i should say we're, but we're, we're, yeah, tra- I mean, we're track know, coaches man what else can you expect yeah. Yeah, we just, if you want to sponsor, reach out. You know, we're happy to help people who are about what we're about, spreading knowledge, wisdom, you know, uh, support and community. Um, so it's pretty simple. Just 